Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of XS Returns, we sit down with Ryan Curlin, Head of Capital Markets at Alpha Architect, to talk about his personal portfolio and investing approach. We talked to Ryan about his exposure to momentum and value stocks, the realities of trend following, why he shuns fixed income, and how some of his goals have changed now that he has a growing family. We also get outside of the portfolio with details around his rationale for buying a vacation property, views on wealth and children, and much more. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Alpha Architect's Ryan Curlin. Just one more thing before we start. Excess Returns has been growing a lot recently, and all of that is a result of the support from our loyal listeners and viewers. We just want to thank everyone who has taken the time to listen to us and for supporting us and allowing us to continue to reach more and more investors. If you have a minute to do it, we would ask one favor of you. If you have benefited from the podcast and could take the time to subscribe on YouTube or your preferred audio platform and to write a review, that would be greatly appreciated. Both are a big part of expanding the podcast and will allow us to continue to get great guests. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for joining us today. How's it going? We've had a number of investors on uh, the podcast to talk about their personal portfolio and investing strategy. And I think it was after the conversation that we had with Wes, the founder of Alpha Architect, which is the firm you're at, um, somebody on Twitter suggested that we sit down with you. So here we are. Here we are. Um, most of the people that we've had on um, and talked to about their portfolio have been maybe a little older and more established in just their career, their investing um, you know, in their amount of investing that they've been doing. Um, you're a little different in that you're on the younger side. And so I thought to start, you know, if you could just maybe frame up where you're at personally with your life, because I think your investment strategy will to some extent reflect some of that. And we were kind of talking before about sort of different stages in investing. So I'll let you just kind of share with the audience um, where you are at. Yeah, yeah, right. Because that, that all affects and... Um... Yeah, so I I got married, uh, I guess, two years ago or so. Uh, I now have a six-month-old kid, uh, have, you know, aging parents. Um, so definitely uh, uh, my, my financial outlook has greatly changed in the last two years, right, which definitely changes how you think of investing and, and the uh, kind of the other uh, potentially more important side when you're younger is, income and, and how much capital and wealth can you get together? Yeah. A, a kid changes a, a, a lot of things for sure. Um, but they're great. But I think the cost is, I don't know what the, there's some statistic when you look at the cost of having a kid, it's like when you total it all up, it's like $300,000 or something by the time they're 18. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cash, cash, uh, starts to become much more important versus, you know, when I was maybe in my early twenties and stuff and all, all you need is, can you pay your rent and do you have enough to go buy a slice of pizza? Right? Like that's, those are your, that's your minimum bar. And you don't realize how expensive baby formula is and diapers are when you add up those two things, it's ridiculous. So, um, I mean, maybe talk to your, when you think about your long-term goals in investing and what you're saving for, um, not necessarily, we'll, we'll put the, the baby on the side for a second, cause I want to come back to if you, how you think about 529 plans and if you utilize one or plan to, but what are your 
biggest goals with your personal investment portfolio, would you say? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, I, I read somewhere that it's a, it's a bad idea to set goals. And I think that's probably right. Um, as you just need to focus on the process and then the results end up taking care of themselves. Uh, I, I, I rode for a club team in college, right? So not a varsity program. I rode at Fordham University. Uh, and the, when I was there, I just had this belief that I could make the U.S. team, right? And it was, uh, it was, it was really just kind of a joke to just about everybody I knew, uh, not, not in a mean way, like nobody was out there mocking me, uh, but it was just in a not able to be understood way, right? Like, ah, uh, like you rode for a club team, you can't even make a varsity program and you think you're gonna row for the US team. Like just it doesn't really make sense, right? But so, so how, did I, how did I do it? Well, I, I just kept at it longer um, I got cut from the U.S. team once, and I just kept waking up every day at either 4 or 5 a.m. Um, and then probably the most important, I, I made those 5 a.m. wake-ups count, right? So I didn't just go through the motion because that's as bad as not waking up at all. Um, that's, you know, like I would call that vanity work, which you see people do. Um, so, so, like, what are my long-term goals with my investments is I don't have a specific goal there. Um, I, I would say for how I think, uh, it's important to understand what phase you're in or so if we're talking about me, cause I guess it's kind of weird for me to talk about me, right? Hey, you're never supposed to talk about yourself. Um, but yeah, so I guess if we're talking about what phase am I in, well, it's the amount of capital dictates what phase you're in, not your age, right? So if you have a thousand dollars to your name, well, investments don't matter at all. <laughs> Right, you got to go find a way to get ten thousand dollars. Then go find a way to get, you know, fifty thousand dollars. Find a way to get a hundred thousand dollars. Like that's going to overwhelm any investment decision you make with that thousand dollars. Is like go earn more, right? Uh, uh, so the only investment decision that matters when you have a thousand dollars is just not doing something totally idiotic like buying depreciating asset or, or losing, like spending it all on clothes and cars or something, right? Because um, it's, 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 it's like a balance beam. It's like a seesaw, right? The more capital you get, the more important um, the investment decisions become. And it's not like, uh, it's not just this, oh, okay, today investments matters, whereas before they didn't, right? Because while I say that, there is obviously nuance. Like go back and say, okay, well, if you, if you have $4,000 and you can go find a way to you know, double that via investments and you turn that into $8,000, well, like, yeah, you know, maybe now you can go buy a $100,000 rental property or something, which is now gonna like start you on your rental career. And now you're, you're kind of got leverage in cause that's what rental or that's what buying uh, real estate kind of does. It brings an element of, of leverage into play. Uh, so, uh, and now you turn that, that $4,000 turned to 8,000. You sell that rental property a few years later, and now you got $30,000 in capital. Like, wow. Like, you know, so, so amounts do matter to some extent in the decisions, the investment decisions you make, but, but, but it, it's a balance beam. And then uh, also kind of what you alluded to at the start, like the stage of your life matters because, you know, when I was 25, I could take some investment risks, like nothing mattered. Nothing mattered. I could take 
all the investment risk in the world that I possibly could. And in some ways I, I, I did take some large investment risk because, uh, I, whatever, like, oh no, I lost my capital. Great. Like I, all I need to do is be able to, you know, as I said, can I, can I go buy that dollar pizza down the block? Uh, I used to live in New York city for a bit. Like they have these things called dollar pizza. <laughs> so I'd get a lot of dollar pizza. Uh, right. Great. Like, so, so your stage, your life, uh, and the amount of capital you have dictate what stage you're in from an investment standpoint. I mean, I think you said two very interesting things there that I just want to flush out one that it's the process and I, I don't do a good job with this. I'm very much like looking at my portfolio and doing Monte Carlo simulations and looking at what the value might be 30 years from now and, you know, getting all hung up on that. But your point is, you know, just worry about the process, which is probably savings, dollar cost averaging, making sure you're, you know, you're staying disciplined and, you know, on the backside of it, just like with the rowing on the backside of it, you, you were successful. But the other thing I'd like to get your thoughts on is that's what makes investing difficult is that, you know, especially as a young person, if you, if you only have, you know, $5,000 to your name or you're, or you're early in your career and you're sort of, it's, it's hard to see the compounding effects or the benefits 15, 20, 30 years down the road. Cause to your point, most people's portfolio starts small, but over at some point, you know, it, it grows. And then that compounding becomes a very powerful, uh, force. And so I think trying to get more younger investors sort of understanding that is, um, you know, could be a very valuable thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Like, cause I did a lot of that, uh, too, starting out buying stocks. Like I, I started working at the New York stock exchange out of college. Uh, I think I could say it now, like I didn't know what a stock was when I joined the New York stock exchange. I was an economics major. I took finance classes in college. Right. But I didn't like really understand what stocks were. And then, so just by doing the act of going and now buying stocks and selling them and, oh my God, I made 10% in a day. And I, all these textbooks I read in college said that the stock market returns you 10% a year on average. And I just made 10% a day. I am the smartest investor ever. Like, oh my God, I just picked that. Like, you know, and, and, and other things. Oh, I, I watched stocks double that I owned. I bought Facebook at $22 a share. Cause I was like, I don't know what all these people are talking about. Like this thing's going to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> like, so I bought it at $22. It went to $50. And I was like, I am a genius, right? Like I know, I know all this right now was a thousand dollars I put into it or whatever. Um, but that, that did all snowball in the sense that, yeah, I, I was able to turn a thousand dollars into 2000, 2000 into 4,000. Um, and that enabled me to eventually buy my first house for a down payment. Um, you know, so like those, those little things, while I initially said they don't matter, it still does all matter. It's just, it's just a great big game, uh, of life. And, uh, it, 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 it just changes the severity for what, how things matter, right? If you, if you lose a hundred percent of your capital when you're 80, I've met people who have done that too. Uh, that's a major problem. Um, if you lose hundred percent of your capital when you're 25, well, you probably didn't lose all that much. And even if it was, you got a lifetime to earn it back.
It's interesting to think about this idea, you know, and you touched on this earlier, this idea of human capital versus investment capital. And like where you are, you know, earlier in your career, your human capital is, is a bit much bigger portion of your portfolio. Even though we're going to show your pie chart and human capital is not on there, you know, where you are, that that's really important. And where if we have somebody who's 70 years old on, you know, their human capital has gone way down and their investment capital is much more important. And, and you know, I think that's important to think about sort of as, as all of us invest our money that, you know, when, when you're younger, you know, what you do with your human capital is probably far more important than what you're investing your investment portfolio in. That's right. Yeah. I, I, so, you know, it's, it's a lot of advice <clears throat> when I always give to people starting out when I say, Hey, you know, what should I do with my, or they, they say, Hey, what should I do with my career? How should I think of things? I just, it, it's the way I thought of myself. I, I, you know, I'm not saying I know all the answers, so this take it or leave it, I guess. But I, I always thought of myself as a growth company, right? So what, what you're, you're 22 years old, like what, what is a, what does a growth company do? Well, you don't, you're not trying to generate earnings. You're trying to raise your revenues as high as possible, uh, right? So like as a young person, you're trying to figure out how can you make yourself as valuable as possible so that your future income will rise. Um, and so that meant things like, uh, I mean, a, a quick side story. I was, I was at this ETF company called Revenue Shares. We got acquired by Oppenheimer Funds. When we got acquired by Oppenheimer Funds, they were like, hey, Ryan, you're, you're gonna give a, a speech to um, all of our uh, you know, 350 sales employees like next week. I'm like, copy that. Uh, I'm at a new company. I wanna put a good foot forward. Uh, so I, without telling anybody, I, I took that Friday off. I had to give the speech Monday. I took that Friday off. I paid $3,500. I found a public speech coach in Washington, DC. I lived in Philadelphia. I, I just booked her, paid $3,500, which was a lot of money to me. Like, and, uh, uh, got on a train rode from the Amtrak down to DC went through eight hour class with her, like working through the speech, um, and then went up, gave the speech and other people also had to give a speech and they ranked us. And then, you know, I was ranked the number one, uh, uh, speech person at Oppenheimer for, for that, yeah, for ETFs. Um, so it was like that, uh, you know, like it paid off. Right. But I did not care at all. Like the $3,500, I was like, who cares? Like I, if I can go be the number one person, well, that's going to pay much bigger dividends down the road. Um, like let's focus on that. Uh, so, so like, I mean, for me, anytime I could invest in myself to potentially improve my outcomes, like that can, that can include the way you dress. Right. Um, I think some people take the act of like, I don't, don't worry about how you dress. I want to dress calm. I kind of take the opposite view. I'm like, I'm not good enough to uh, dress like Wes Gray. Um, <laughs> right. I don't have like Chicago PhD Marine Corps out the wazoo. So I'm like, I, you know, let me at least dress reasonable. So people know that I'm a reasonable human out the gates. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I just don't want to put myself in a hole uh, starting out. So, uh, yeah, just personal opinion. But, yeah, Wes can dress however he wants, right? 
<laughs> so. Yeah, you know, that's a great like uh, that's a great story because, you know, in sort of in the wake of 2020, we've seen a lot of people who are maybe younger who are focusing on investing their assets and, you know, maybe doing some risky things with their assets. And, you know, a lot of those people are probably better off focusing on what they can do in their career and what they can do personally. You know, like like your example of what you did there, you know, that's probably going to produce more dividends than trying to buy the, the next risky stock. Yeah. And still good. Like like I said, still good to think about investments and do it because Cop capital compounds like ten thousand dollars forty years from now is going to be worth a lot more than one thousand dollars forty years from now, right? So, it's it's a game, it's a balance. How do you how do you divide the two perfectly? There is there is no perfect answer. That's um, that that's the game. Before we look at your pie chart that you provided, I want to start by maybe talking about the vehicle because one of the things we get a debate we have a lot of investment advisors debate is this idea of which vehicle you use to sort of save for the long term when you're younger um, or at any stage. And, you know, there's this whole debate of Roths versus traditional, and, and I'm wondering like how do you think about like when you're saving your money that you're investing? What are you using tax deferred uh, approaches or using taxable approaches? Like how, how are you thinking about how you save that money and what vehicle you invested in? I kind of had my eyes, you know, and this is where it's, like I say, it's a game and you're just constantly learning. I, I kind of had my eyes opened a little bit by uh, the financial advisor friend of mine, uh, Travis Gatzmeyer down in Texas. Because uh, he, he was like, well, no, you kind of should put more of your money into taxable like etf wrapper um and uh versus versus your you know ira 401k and i guess to, to take a step back there um if you're getting a match right like that's the basic f uh financial recommendation and uh, if, if you're getting a match, a 401k match, they're matching 3%, you know, 50% of what you put in or, you know, full match, like you should max that out, right? Because that, that's free money. And even if you had to pull that out and pay taxes on it, you would still be ahead of where you were for not doing that. So that's a no brainer. If, it, if you're getting a match, you always want to do that. Um, but then after that, well, I also used to kind of be a little unsure on the answer for what's the best wrapper. Uh, mutual fund, hedge fund, uh, you know, direct stocks versus ETF. Um, and now I, I can say, I guess, you know, I've got enough knowledge, uh, like the ETF wrapper is the best wrapper for, uh, for taxable money for almost all strategies. There are exceptions, but for almost all. Um, so if you're using taxable money and you put it in an ETF wrapper, the ETF wrapper can kind of dodge uh, a lot of the capital gains transactions that happen within the strategy versus you doing it yourself, trading stocks. Because what happens when you buy a stock, if you make money and then you want to go buy another stock, well, now you got to sell that, which is going to trigger taxes for you. Um, whereas in the ETF wrapper, when we sell a stock and go buy another, we don't trigger those capital gains distributions. Um, so yeah, so I, I think, again, it's a balance, but yeah, if you're getting a match, invest in that. If you're um, getting, uh, uh, using your taxable money, most of the time go into the ETF wrapper. Yeah, one of the cool things about the ETF wrappers, we've got a lot of strategies that you know would normally generate a lot of taxable changes that have sort of come out in the last few years that are now in the ETF wrappers, and so you can follow those strategies in a taxable account. And as long as you're holding on to the ETF, you can basically you know defer all of those taxes, which is really cool. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I uh, yeah. The, there's some other crazy stories in there too uh, on the ETF wrapper, but I think uh, 
we'll, we'll keep on topic. I we'll, we, we could have another podcast on like my tinfoil hat theories um, that I think are more <laughs> tinfoil. We, we've done some of it. Uh, look, I'm looking at fixed income mutual funds being the big tinfoil hat theory I have. So we'll, we'll have to bring you back for the tinfoil hat. <laughs> yeah. we, we haven't done one yet, so uh, that, that'll be our first one. Put it on. Um, so getting to getting to your uh, your asset classes you invest in, you know, you sent us a pie chart which we'll put in the video. Um, but I'm wondering if you could sort of talk at a high level um, about sort of what you're invested in and w what that pie chart looks like in terms of your asset allocation. Uh, yeah, so I, I just found it funny because in preparation for this, I was like, all right, I'll I'll watch what the episode you guys did with Wes. Um, and yeah, it, it's a little bit funny to me, you know, uh, it, somebody had asked you guys to have me on, so cool. Um, as you guys said, I'm, I'm younger, so I don't have the same amount of capital uh, most of your uh, guests before me had had on. And uh, But the interesting thing was Wes had in his pie chart, he said 76% of his wealth was Alpha Architect equity. Um, uh, and then I just, before this, for the first time, I was like, oh, I better make my own little pie chart here. So I, I spun it up and I was like, oh, it says 76% of my wealth is Alpha Architect equity. Now my pie is just much smaller than Wes Gray's, uh, uh, but, uh, which I don't think I'm revealing any two hidden secrets there. But yeah, so Alpha Architect equity is, is the ownership I have in this company is is uh, the bulk of my wealth. Um, that just happened by it growing. Uh, uh, you know that I think that's just the um, the name of the game when you uh, own own uh, you, you know company stock. Um, and then the other twenty four percent then is uh, I invest in momentum strategies. I invest in value strategies, and then uh, for 50% of my portfolio, so long-only equity, long-only value and momentum, uh, and then the other 50% of my investment is uh, in trend-followed equity. Um, and we could go into the whys on that, but yeah, that, that's the pie. So when you look at the liquid portion of your portfolio, do you make any changes to that because Alpha Architect is such a huge portion of your net worth. I mean, I don't think you knowing what Alpha Architect believes in, I don't think you were buying unprofitable tech anyway. Um, so you probably wouldn't stay away from, you know, like the, the highest risk stuff. But I'm wondering, do you, do you think at your young age that that makes any difference? Do you have that much money in the ownership of one company? Do you change anything with the rest of your portfolio because of it? Yeah, it, it did. Um, that's why I, I said as of about three months ago, I was 100% trend followed equity. Uh, and that was the logic behind it. It's something Meb talks about too. Hey, if, if you're working for or own a uh, uh, you know, long-only equity manager, like you have enough beta exposure, right? You have enough market exposure. Uh, market goes up and down is going to greatly affect things. So uh, the trend followed equity was nice to um, kind of remove a bit of that for me. And working in finance, working in asset management, as you guys know well, like 20% drawdowns, you're like, whatever, right? Like that's, you know, same song, different year. Um, but if we have something like an 80% drawdown, well, now it's like, eh, yeah, that, that's, that's going to hurt things, right? In, in like your day-to-day -day life. Um, so, uh, I, I thought it was important to have some trend followed equity 
uh, for the bulk of my investments uh, for, for that reason. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about this before the podcast, but it's something I, I think of too, is like th this idea of, you know, coupling trend following with sort of a buy the dip idea that, you know, when trend following does protect you, you know, if you put a little more money in the long only, because we know about trend following, you know, it's going to take a little bit when the trend reverses for trend following to get back in. So like this idea of slowly buying the dip, I haven't been able to figure out how to do it quantitatively, but it's, it's a really interesting concept. I, th I think it makes a lot of sense. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, yeah, thank you. Cause that was the next part, right? So I was a hundred percent trend followed equity all of like two months ago or so. And I took 50% of that and just bought long only momentum and value strategies, uh, to basically try to, you know, the, the trend followed equity had protected me. And then I was able to get in at the long only equity at a lower price. So that was cool. It was like, yeah. Now, again, to your point, like, is there a way to quantitatively do it? Like there's no, I just do it ad hoc. I was like, oh, I can get in at a lower price now. Cool. Um, I should have waited. <laughs> Stock market kept going down, right? So like there's there's no way to perfectly time the bottom. And I may, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely may sell even a little more to lock in some more long only equity. I don't think I would go lower than like 30% of my portfolio trend followed equity, but that, that other 20% I have uh, in, in trend followed equity, I, I could see myself moving um, in the next couple months here. And how do you think about, um, you know, incorporating value and momentum in your portfolio? You sort of talked about you've got equal weights between them. Um, what do you think about like the, the idea of like, do you, I mean, do you, do you rebalance between them? Do you sort of just keep them equal and try to occasionally bring them back? How do you think about sort of the blend between the two of them? I, I just basically keep them equal. That that's one of the things that I just think falls into. It's just the least so far down my list of concerns, right? If the number one thing I could do to increase my wealth is go make more money, uh, then that should be my top focus, right? Like how do I, how do I add more value to the world that the world now will give me back a portion of that? Uh, so that's that's uh that's the most important thing then investments you know as my investments grow they do matter um but the the my timing on my rebalances is just like uh like i'll just look at what what long only uh stock st strategy do i have less in i'll just go buy that um with with new capital uh so that's that's kind of the way that goes uh there, there's no heavy thought into rebalancing at this point and again there's like the ad hoc thing of well hey the trend follow protected let me buy some uh buy the dip right um but but nothing too quantitative or or serious serious thought power behind that at this point yeah, and I like seeing that you're kind of a sleeve multi-factor investor, which is the way I, I like to do it too. You know, we had Daniel Crosby on, on Show Us Your Portfolio, and he actually, first of all, I was surprised he was a factor investor. I thought he'd be an index investor, and he he's like an aggressive, uh, you know, very aggressive focused factor investor, but you know, he's an integrated factor investor. He's kind of doing it the other way, trying to find like stocks that have simultaneous multi-factor portfolios. But I, I like the idea like you're doing of, you know, having value, having momentum, and kind of having them as separate sleeves within a portfolio. Yeah, it, it, it simplifies things. It's, um, I mean... It's it's a different yin yin and yang, right? Value is buying stocks that are cheap. Uh, momentum is buying the stocks that are strong. Sometimes there's overlap in those two, such as right now, because uh, what's cheap and strong is energy stocks. Um, so it, it can be interesting that uh, when there's overlap, but uh, yeah, most of the time they're kind of very different uh, uh, things. Is there is there ever a chance? Would you ever reduce your equity exposure? So you know, Med Faber had this thought uh, thing he did on, on Twitter where he was like, you know, what if the cape went to fifty? What if the cape went to hundred? You know, given that you're younger, I mean, is there any situation where the valuation of the market would lead you to reduce your equity exposure? I don't, I don't think so. But 
Right now, um, my investment portfolio is probably like the most simple it's ever been. And that just goes back to like what stage you're in and what amount of risk you can afford to take. Um, and, uh, and like my risk has been lowered in the last few years for the risk I, I could take. Um, and also like that, that alpha architect equity piece becoming such a big part of my wealth, like also changes, uh, like how you think about things. Um, so, uh, like, I mean, you said, Hey Ryan, you're probably not buying like those expensive stocks. Well, like I did. <laughs> so like, uh, sac you know, kind of sacrilegious. I, I, I bought Tesla stock, um, like way back in the day. And, and I remember I bought it when I was at the New York stock exchange and I bought it when it was like $12 a share or something. And I remember, I remember the price it went up to, it went up to $36 a share and everybody at the New York stock exchange was like, dude, you got to sell. Like you just tripled your money. Like that's unbelievable. Like get out. You know, it was like, I turned a thousand dollars into $4,000. And I got the time I was like, Oh my God, I turned a thousand dollars. Like, Oh my God. And, uh, and I, I kind of didn't sell. And I mean, I, uh, I actually making a longer story short, but I, I kind of kept buying Tesla. Um, and I used that to buy and I, cause I didn't have this in my, uh, my wealth pie, but I, I, I did pretty well on Tesla stock. I used that to buy a rental property. Like I, I sold Tesla when it was like for its stock price today. I and it's cause it's been split like 20 times or something. I, I sold it when it was like at, uh, like $120, uh, a share or $130 a share. Like I think today it's like $180 a share, 170, something like that. So, I mean like, and I, and I put a good amount of my wealth into that and just kind of, just kind of wrote it. And it's, it's really hard cause I'll sit back and think about it a lot. I'm like, was that just dumb luck or did I really know? Like, did I have some edge there? Because I convinced myself that I knew that I had some edge and it worked out, but there, it's impossible for me to know like whether that was skill or, or just dumb luck. Um, but, but so that did get me a, uh, quasi rental property. I use it like it's, it's in a beach town. So I both use it personal and, and rent it out. Um, so yeah. Uh, so yeah, like that, that was, that was kind of a weird one, but, but like, I wouldn't have taken that risk now. Right. So that, that's where it's just this constantly evolving game where, um, like what are, what, what are the given tools you have? And then that dictates, cause like, I'm always looking for opportunities. Like if there's something I'm like, man, this is sure can't miss. Like I feel really good about, could I, you know, take some money and, uh, get a little more exotic. Like, yeah, I, I would be willing to do that. One point I wanted to make with, um, your liquid portfolio is you, you know, exactly what you're paying. Um, and you know, I think a lot of investors out there have no idea what they're paying in these funds or the, their advisor account. And I mean, given your expertise in, you know, ETFs and given that most ETFs come with, you know, lower fees and mutual funds, that's an important thing for investors to just understand, I think, and, and think about. And, um, and your portfolio is very simple. You know, you have your whatever, three or four ETFs, and then, you know, you know what the fees are, call it a day. Yeah. And, and, and like, again, as I get older versus trying to trade single stocks and stuff, this, the systematic, like, you know, the, what I'm doing, I believe is going to add out performance over the long term. So that kind of scratches that itch of like, well, I want to outperform, but also 
I kind of want these systematic things because I don't have the free time I did to be like studying stocks and analyzing. So I'm like happy to outsource, um, you know, into systematic investment strategies, uh, uh, you know, time that I used to spend. Cause that, that was also a joke I had too at certain points in my life. I was like, man, I get stock market like returns with a ton of volatility. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, so I I think I got some questions. You have some further down questions I I could get into that on. But uh, one of the things I noticed was missing from your portfolio is bonds. Um, is that a function of the fact that you have a really long time horizon? Is is that a function of the fact that yields were really low at least coming into this year, and so bonds didn't make a lot of sense? Like, what, what what's your thought process in not having bonds? Yeah, they never made sense to me. I never owned bonds. Uh, yeah, I and like when I'm, you know. 22, 25, 30 years old, and these things are yielding because, you know, I, I started investing basically at the exact stock market bottom, um, like June 2009, you know, so just a little after that. Uh, but yeah, like it was like, oh, this thing's yielding 4%. Like, well, that stinks. You know, hey, look at these stocks. They can get me 10, 15% a year. Again, that was my young mind. But uh, but even still, as I got more knowledgeable, it was, yeah, it was just that. I, I would much rather have cash and capital on the sidelines. And when you're, when you're, when you're building your career too, like as we said, there is this thing, I have this, um, uh, this human capital where I got, you know, a paycheck every two weeks or every month or whatever for, for most of my career. Um, and, uh, so it's like, well, I know I got more cash coming next week, right? Because I set my life up where I, you know, my fixed costs are, are much lower than my, uh, 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 my income. So like I got more cash on the way, right? So if there is like, oh, well, you, you know, you should always have X percent in bonds or whatever. Well, my, my income acted like my bond portfolio where I was able to buy the dips and do those things um, uh, and like reduce my volatility, I guess, in some sense um, um, via income. Uh, and obviously you could pick at that and say, oh, well, what happens if you lost your job or whatever? Um, that's true. But but then I always looked at that too. I'm like, yeah, but if I lost my job, I still have that investment portfolio. And again, even if it was at the worst time where it's down 50%, well, you know, I was young and I had such a low cost of living that I was locked into. Like if I needed to blow things up um, and like get my cost of living to zero, like I could, I when I was younger, I could do that real fast, right? Like. Um, so, so yeah, you could just take risks. You just don't need bonds. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting way to look at it sort of as the income is, is a replacement for bonds. As, as you grow older, I mean, do you think you'll add bonds? I mean, do you think that's really long, a long way in the future? Or is that something, you know, with yields up now, you might think about like in the next five, 10 years, something like that? Yeah, it, it changes perspective for sure. Um, I, I kind of like the idea of trend following bonds. Uh, at this point, like I could see myself doing that in the future. Cause what happens, you know, we were in a 30 year bull bond market and this is all the education journey I'm on for finance, right? Where, uh, like people like Wes and Jack are ahead of me there. Uh, and other people I learned from in the industry, like Meb, you said, um, and, uh, it's, um, if, if we were in a 30 year bull bond market where bonds were just going up and that was incredible. Uh, but what if, what if we're in a 30 year bear bond market and these bonds are just going to become less and less valuable every year, essentially, you know, maybe not in a direct straight line down, but, um, so yeah, I, I don't know at, at this point, I, I really like the idea of like cash and then, uh, maybe 
in the future, not now, but maybe trend following bonds for myself. Uh, personal finance is personal, right? It's different for everybody. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, but I, I just want to acquire as many assets as I can. Like at this point, that's my focus. Yeah, you know, on bonds, I've kind of come around to the way Wes looks at it. Like when, when Wes was on the podcast, he said it in like the way only Wes can. But he's like, why would anybody ever own bonds without trend following? He's like, it makes absolutely zero sense. And, and I think that he's right about that. Um, you know, so I think it, it probably does make sense, you know, if you incorporate bonds to use trend following because it does have these, it's, bonds do have these long trends they, they can get into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I am, uh, I'm, you know, working with Wes every day. So I, 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 I drink the Kool-Aid. Um, you know, I got, he's implanted himself in my brain pretty good from an investment perspective. So just uh, one more question on the equity piece. How, how do you think about international exposure? You know, there, there's some people who think, you know, you, you get, get everything you want here in the U S you really don't need to own international stocks. And obviously, you know, at least if you think about shorter timeframes, that's worked out very well. The U S has outperformed international stocks for a long time, but then there's other people who think about, you know, that international exposure really is over the long term, you know, something that's going to enhance your returns or, or give you more diversification. So do you, do you invest in international stocks and how do you think about that? Yep. So I, I just do value and momentum investing internationally. Uh, and like how I think about that is on emerging markets, it's, it, I don't do emerging markets. The, the data, if you look at it, just for emerging markets seems to give you the same returns as international uh, developed equities, but with just a whole lot more volatility. Um, so that just kind of is like, mm. and then there's also this thing where you know, you look at like back tested returns on things like, let's just pick on emerging market equities. Um, there's a difference into like forward expected returns. Like you actually, I mean, you really got to think intuitively as to why something should give you uh, like a premium. And we're all learning that lesson really, really hard right now in uh, China and Russia, right? Like Russian stock market went to zero dollars. <laughs> Russian stock market was like the darling of emerging market investors forever. It was like the entire Russian stock market trades at a PE of two. Like what a steal. Like, so you could put this amazing story on Russia and then like all your capital has gone, like just gone. So, um, and like we're on a you know, maybe similar path with China. Like, I don't know if your money's going to go to zero, but uh, I mean, I know Perth Tolls shared it a bunch and I don't know who created it, but some, somebody just showed the, the Chinese stock market returns of uh, the last 40 years and it's basically zero. It's like even with that huge run up, like your actual returns were zero because in these, you know, communist dictator countries, they, they don't care um, about you receiving money. And I have actually some coworkers here who lost millions of dollars. Um, uh, previous coworkers lost millions of dollars. They had a, uh, uh, a Chinese company and just one day the Chinese government just said, Nope, that's ours. Like that's ours. Right. So that happens. Like China does that. You can't really do that in America. You can't really do that in these, these countries that have property rights. Um, so yeah, like, uh, like whether you should invest in emerging markets at all is tricky. I think there's like, if you're a financial advisor, I build models with financial advisors a lot and I'll include like a 5% sleeve to emerging markets. I, and I, I say this openly to them, like the reason we have that in there is just potentially behavioral. Like if we go back through a 2000 to 2005 scenario where emerging markets just go up 300%, you're like, you just kind of want to have something to that just so your clients are like, 
you know um, I think like behavioral can drive a lot of answers because um, the best thing people need to do is be able to stick to what they're doing right um, so yeah so so on international yeah I do international I do international developed I don't do emerging markets there's also these huge trading costs and taxes when it comes to emerging markets um, that you can't get around so yeah so maybe a little too much info longer answer <laughs> I don't know um, but yeah it's it's a these are all just like s such such deep questions that like each one of these questions we could spend you know five hours talking about probably and and even that like we wouldn't have the answer right like we would all just be like yeah okay well let's think about it again tomorrow <laughs> before we uh just move on i do i do want to, speaking of the behavioral sort of sticking with it um you know some people might listen to this and say oh like trend following that's sounds like a really good interesting strategy but you know i'm wondering if you could just talk about sort of just the realities of trend following uh, you know there's good parts of it there's bad parts of it the important thing is that investors stick with it but you know from your from your knowledge and experience like what would be the pluses and minuses that investors should know going in with their eyes wide open um i think uh <laughs> I, th I don't know if it's nasim taleb's quote or if he just says it, but I know he says it. There's like a quote, if I gave you tomorrow's newspaper, you would lose all your money, right? Like, and I butchered the quote a little bit, but that was the general gist. Like I could give you all of the details in the future and you would lose all your money. <laughs> like, like I could say, okay, Justin, Jack, there's gonna be a worldwide pandemic. The entire US economy and world economy is going to shut down on march whatever it was 10th like what do you guys want to do with your money for the next year you'd be like i'm going short everything i have and you would have lost all your money because somehow some way yeah the stock market went down 20 percent whoop de do and then figured out a way to go up like goddamn 60%, right? So like if you went all the way short, you would have lost all your money. So trend following, like I'll give you another similar story on that. Um, uh, let me see how to frame this properly. So trend following is interesting because you, you basically get whatever asset class you're investing in. Historically, you get re the returns of that asset class with significantly reduced, reduced drawdowns, often around give or take like 50% less drawdowns. So um, um, then just simply buy and hold. So that's interesting. You're like, oh, wow, same returns, um, uh, lower drawdown, sign me up. Well, okay, so now let's just like zoom in on just, you know, one asset class we could try and follow, the US stock market, right? So let's go back in the last, uh, what is it, 2022, we'll go back, you know, to 19, 27, let's say like last 100 years, um, the I'll give you the max drawdown number of the US stock market is about 83%. And I'll give you the max trend followed drawdown uh, of the US stock market. It was about 42%. Um, when do you think those two time periods were? Like when, like it, this is a quiz for you guys now, you're on the spot. When was the max trend? Trend followed, and when was the max buy and hold drawdown of the U.S. stock market? So I'm gonna say I'll go first. I'll say, and maybe I know the max drawdown long only would have been the Great Depression, so it would have been either 30 or 32 or something or 29, something in there. And I bet the 
max trend following would be during some bull market where it was a great run for stocks, but there was a, just a lot of volatility. And so tr the trend following never was able to really get it right. And it kept on getting whipsawed. So that's, I don't know when, it might've been like the nineties or something. I don't know. That's my guess, Jack, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking definitely the Great Depression is the first one. I was thinking maybe the 70s in the second one, um, but I'm not really sure. Yeah, so I did my best to, to stay reactionless there because I didn't want to give Jack any <laughs> any help on Justin's answer, <laughs> any clues. So that was hard. So if I looked, if I, if I looked weird on camera, uh, that's why. Uh, so yes, exactly. Everybody knows the max drawdown, 83% Great Depression. Everybody knows that one. The worst trend follow drawdown came in the 40s. So like it was, the stock market was down about 44% and a trend followed on the S&P 500. A trend followed S&P 500 strategy would have been down like 42%. Like would have saved you 2%. Um, like, and just imagine that in today's world. Like if the three of us are like, if we were doing trend followed on the S&P 500 and we had like, you know, a little bit of capital invested in the Great Depression, we would have been geniuses. Everybody in the world would have given us our money because in the Great Depression, trend followed, you only went down 20%. So it saved you a 60% additional drawdown. So like we would have been the richest men in the world. Like everybody would have given us their money. Been like, these guys are wizards, absolute wizards. They got out like, and, and then they, when it finally turned around, they got us back in. Um, uh, but then... <laughs> the next big drawdown we would have gone down the same amount and everybody would have been screaming at us that we are morons and we don't know anything and capital would have left and should have invested in you know whatever else um so it, it's just like amazing like trend follow still works but that that's that's the downside it just doesn't work at all times and we've seen that in recent history with with live uh trend followed strategies too uh like the, some of the drawdowns they kind of take you down with the drawdown just you know because you're just kind of getting whipsawed um and then you know on other drawdowns they've they've really saved your tail like this current drawdown has been excellent for trend following um so that's that's a trade-off so you 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 gotta understand it because that's what's going to keep you able to be invested with it just one more thing i want to ask about your portfolio before i hand it back to justin um since since you are the youngest guy we've had on here i want to ask you about crypto um, you know, did you do any investing in crypto? Did you get your Lambo? Um, you know, did you, uh, did you invest in any of the coins or how, how did you sort of think through that, that whole process? I did for like, oh, two weeks, but uh, working at an asset manager, you have to file every trade you make. And I was like, this was not something I wanted to buy and hold. I just viewed it as like, I was like, wow, this is a, this is a good thing to trend follow on. So I, I, I owned it for a little bit. Like, I mean, again, I turned like a thousand dollars into $4,000, but I was having to spend half my day, uh, filing trades and stuff with compliance at our firm and getting clearance. Cause we have to get any trade we make, we have to get clearance. And then, you know, so I was oh, like, and that's obviously now I'm driving somebody else at our firm nuts because every damn, like you had to have a super tight trend follow, uh, 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 on there. You can't do like a, like we do for equity, like a, a one year trend follow signal. It's like, you know, I was trend following like really short time frames. Um, so it, it yeah, it kind of worked, but I only did it for like two weeks, but it was a lot of fun. It, it was like the first big run that, um, on a national level, like where, like 
whatever it was, it was like December, 2018 or something like that. I remember I was in a, we were driving up to New York city for work for something. And I was watching Bitcoin go up a thousand dollars. Like every 20 minutes, it was like $16,000, $17,000, 18,000. It was like, Oh my God. Um, but that was it. I, I just, otherwise one, two time consuming again to, to do that type of trend following on it too. Um, in the, in the too hard bucket, Buy, buying crypto is just, it's, it's no different than buying an individual stock. Like, I don't, I don't know what the answer is for, you know, 99.9% .9 of individual stocks, like whether they're going to be good or bad investments. And actually 80% of individual stocks underperform cash, like over the long term, right? So if you're just randomly picking stocks out of a hat, you're actually more likely than much more likely than not to underperform cash. Um, uh, so it's obviously if, if all of crypto is basically a, a, the equivalent of investing in a single stock, yeah, it's the same thing. You're trying to figure out, is this going to work for the long term or not? And everything that goes with it. Yeah. For me, uh, too, too, too hard bucket. One of the unique things I'm, I'm looking back at the pie chart. Sorry, we haven't kind of moved off this, but it, it is, and I'm, I'm sort of like you, Ryan, like, I think like, you know, if I believe in something and, you know, I run strategies, I pretty much in, invested with them in them and sort of like right alongside my, our clients, you know? Um, and I mean, that's pretty much, you know, what you're doing. And, but what's interesting is like when, and listen, Meb and Wes, they're, you know, different with their sort of where they are in their career and stuff, but you're, your wealth, at least with this portion, because like you said, you have the rental and you have your house and stuff, which I do want to talk about just um, in a second. But, you know, your overall portfolio is very tied to the success of the firm and the success of the strategies. It, so it's, you know, very tightly correlated to these strategies working, because as the strategies work and the ETFs grow, the firm becomes more valuable. So someone might look at this and say, you know, that's almost too concentrated on the success of Alpha, Ar Alpha Architect and you might benefit from something completely uncore, like Wes with the managed future stuff. Like he had, you know, whatever it was, 100 managed futures contracts that somebody on Twitter, was it Rick Ferry? That's like, good luck. Like if something happens to you, Wes, that your wife understands all this, all this stuff. Um, but I don't know. I just, it's, it's interesting. Like, but I, again, I kind of identify with your, that style that, you're working at Alpha Architect. Your, you know, much of your wealth in the future is going to come from the, the success of the company, and you're decked up right up alongside your clients invested in those funds. It's just some, like a financial advisor, might look at this and say, "Man, you got to get more diversified. You got to get something uncorrelated to Alpha Architect." I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. No, I think it's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, the one thing to remember is like we're not iShares, uh, and this is no shot on iShares. I think it's like they're very open about it. What is iShares mission in the ETF world is to launch an ETF on every single asset class with every single strategy available, like to give you investors access to every asset class in the world and every single strategy on that asset class in the world. Like that, that's basically iShares mission, uh, or, or, and true for, you know, a few of the other big shops too. Right. And at Alpha Architect, we are different in that we say, no, we're actually saying this is, we believe the best strategy if you're trying to invest in this asset class. Right. So, um, 
So, so that matters, right? Because I'm, I'm putting this in because it's, we're sitting here and we're like, we believe this is the best way to invest your money in these types of strategies. I'm not saying it is the best. You could debate it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's the best way to invest your money in this strategy. So that's why I do that because uh, it just makes sense. Um, I, I don't know of a better way to do it. Uh, and then two, um, yeah, it's, it's correlated with Alpha Architect, but we get that question a lot too. Hey, what happens if Alpha Architect disappears tomorrow? Like, you know, me, Wes and Jack are all on a plane and goes down and, uh, you know, I don't know, all of our, like, you know, investors sell and we can't cover the bills. Like, well, like whatever is left in Alpha Architect, like if Alpha Architect shut down tomorrow, uh, just the way the ETF, ETFs are, they're actually separate companies than us. So we could shut down tomorrow and Alpha Architect ETFs would still be uh, operating essentially. Like now you'd have to find somebody to operate them, but, but that's a job of the board um, that, that oversees each ETF. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it, it's all good. Um, if, if some should happen, <laughs> uh, the, the strategies would live on. So just, to, just before we kind of wrap up here, um, I do want to get your thoughts on, so you have the rental property, you bought that with the Tesla stock. You own a house um, that you live in, and then is there any other? And do you? But you didn't include those in the in the pie chart. Is that because you kind of just don't think of those as part of your net worth, or or do you? Yeah, I mean you do, but I just consider them like they're just. I mean, well, one your personal home. No, I, I don't consider that at all. I consider that purely consumption, right? Because that's only not consumption for your kids <laughs> uh, like when you pass away your kids I, you know i guess if if you have equity left in the house they will get your that whatever that is right um you, you know i don't need something like a reverse mortgage or something right um so your personal house no i, I don't view that as anything of my net worth it's purely consumption um yeah the the this the Beach house, rental property, quasi deal. Yeah, it, it's somewhere in the middle, but it's the same thing. I just, I don't really worry about it or track it as part of my net worth. Um, you know, you can't help but be like, oh, what's it worth, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, nothing there. I, I just look at it. Um, my my dad had taught me this, and he heard somebody else say it, and I just thought it was a really valid thing. My parents had a beach house. Um, it's now, it's like the only house they own, but, um, but they would, um, you know, we, we all meet up there like every summer and our whole summer growing up, like high school, college, uh, post-college, right. We would all always return there. And so like, it's not necessarily a money maker. I'm not making money on it, but I can kind of finagle a way to make it a little bit break even. Um, and then in the future, um, the, the great thing about having some vacation home and you know you go all across the country there's every city i go to there's all some area that's like the getaway area um those are places that your family will return to again and again and again I, I kid around with my wife we live in this town called haverford pa um like we could own there are like massive estates in our town <laughs> Like we live in, I think the smallest house in the town, which I make the joke. I say, oh, they say it's, you know, buy the, the crappiest house in the, in the best, uh, on the best, like on a good block or whatever. And I'm like, oh, we bought the smallest house, uh, you know, uh, in the whole town. Like, good job. <laughs> we must be doing good. Um, but, uh, but like that, that point is we could own one of these estates down the road. Like nobody would ever visit us in Haverford. 
like people just don't care what's Haverford, right? But you own like a beach house, people are like, people will come sleep on our floor. They'll be like, hey, is the floor open this weekend, right? So like you're like for me with my parents like it always brought me home and now you know that i'm starting a family and stuff it's just a way um uh like vacation homes bring bring your family together bring your family back so if you can finagle away uh you know i, I think you said it yourself um you know, in a note you sent me you said you, you have a sailboat which is a terrible investment but you get joy from it um yeah like kind of similar idea it's like may or may not turn out to be a good investment, but that's like a far, far uh, secondary consideration for me. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I mean, I think the fact that you, you know, you did that as a kid, those memories were made with your family and your friends. And now you've kind of said, you know, you want to do the same thing for your family and your friends, especially now that you have um, a child. I think that, you know, that's awesome because as, as the kids get older, you know, it becomes sometimes harder and harder to get them wanting to do stuff but a beach house the ocean i mean you know how can you not yeah i'm lucky i mean you know my kid's six months old so I, but i just look at him every day i'm like you will always love me you will always love me you'll never leave me like just try to get that subconscious going uh, so the, the other great investment along those lines which is also a terrible financial investment is a swimming pool like, you know, you kind of mentioned, like, nobody wants to come to my house. Like, that was kind of the situation for us, too. And then we put a swimming pool in, and now it's like, everybody wants to come to your house. So, like... Everybody wants to come to your house. It's a horrible investment. It doesn't really increase the value of your house that much. But, like, I mean, if you want to hang out with your friends and family all the time, like, people will come to your house all the time if you have a swimming pool. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Exact same thing. Yeah. My, my wife's aunt has a swimming pool, and we're at her house all the time. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. It's, it's exactly right. So, right. We have a standard closing question we like to ask all of our guests. Um, that do this with us. And by the way, this has been great. Thank you for opening up and, you know, sharing these details with us about your, your portfolio. But um, the question is, if you had to impart one lesson that you've learned from building your personal portfolio to your average investor, what would that be? Just focus on providing more value in your life than you take, because then the rest will, that the rest just takes care of itself eventually. It's not always a straight line, like give you know you give and then you get then you give then you get but i think yeah if you just focus on providing people more value than than you're taking uh yeah i think stuff will work out thank you ryan this has been this has been great if people want to learn more about you and alpha architect where can they go the the, the, the banner in the back gives it away yeah this could be dead giveaway just put a little dot com right there uh alphaarchitect.com come check us out all right ryan thank you very much thank you yeah. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.